This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From creator Frank Mueller comes the comic series, The Devil You Know. One late night, Graydon Cross comes home to find his family slaughtered and Satan himself standing before him. Fueled with rage, he rushes towards Satan, but is struck down before he gets to have his revenge. Upon his death, God appears before Graydon and gives him a choice. Graydon Cross, I am God. Your family and yourself were murdered by Satan. You may choose heaven, hell, or revenge. I'll send you to hell with powers I have given you to kill Satan. But if you kill Satan, you must become him. Do we have a deal? Deal. His desire for revenge too strong to ignore, Graydon agrees to God's terms and descends to hell on a mission to assassinate the devil and avenge his family. Upon finding himself in hell, Graydon must battle his way through an army of demons, all the while discovering the limitations of his new powers. The Devil You Know, written by Frank Mueller, available on Comixology and AcesAndAidsPress.com. This is Zorda. It's time for another episode of the Canned Air Podcast. All right. It's morphin' time. Go, go, Power Rangers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Canned Air, a tribute to comics and pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. And I'm Jack Doherty. And I'm Jeff Holton. We've got a very special episode for you today. We were privileged enough to be able to talk with David J. Fielding, who most of you might know as Zordon from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. He... It was beyond nice. It was a heck of a great time. Uh, I tried to be like Zordon just a minute ago, saying my name. <laughs> I think that one is. He was awesome, man. That guy was a treat to yeah. have on the show. Yeah, yeah, he definitely was, and he is a uh, jack of many trades. I mean, not only acting, but uh, writer, too. A very active writer. Working in the gaming industry, too. Holy crap. Yeah. That threw me way off. Yeah, a lot of popular games, too. Yeah. You may have heard his voice and don't even know it. But I think I have Dungeon Siege. <laughs> Before we explain the whole interview here to you, we're just going to turn it over to you and let you enjoy it. So, Giving spoilers to the... <laughs> To our own interview. <laughs> so without any further ado, here's our interview with David J. Fielding, Zordon. Our guest today is an amazingly talented writer and voice and screen actor. He has many published works available on Amazon, and a few of which we'll touch on later, as well as his online blog, The Day of Zordon, at therealzordon.wordpress.com. He's best known for his portrayal as the character Zordon on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the real Zordon, David J. Fielding. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, everybody. It's nice to be here. We uh, follow you on Instagram, and I got to oh, say, awesome. I, I love uh, all the stuff you post, but you seem to keep pretty busy going to cons and such, so I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us. Oh, yeah, sure. Not a problem. I'm, I'm, any, any chance I get to sort of like talk to people that, you know, want to do an interview, I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to. I mean, it's, uh, it's just my way of kind of giving back. So. Well, we appreciate it. We really do. 
Now, before we get started, uh, in doing my homework on you, I found out that you are a comic book fan, or at least used to be, and <laughs> <laughs> I have to get your impression of Age of Ultron. What'd you think? Uh, I, I've seen it three times. Okay, uh, so you must like so, it. So, <laughs> uh, there, are, there are a lot of moments that I really, really enjoy about it. Uh, again, I've sort of come to the, the conclusion that since Marvel is doing such a great job with, with their stuff, that... I wish Ultron had been two movies. I, I wish they had yep. split it up uh, because if you know the history of, of Ultron from the comic books and every time that he's made an appearance in the comic books, uh, when, when you have a, a story arc in a comic book, you know, it, it generally lasts over a year. So you, you get like this really nice, long, drawn out confrontation between, you know, uh, villains and, and heroes and stuff like that. And trying to squeeze all of that into a two, two and a half hour movie is, is kind of tough. So I, I really commend anybody that, that, that makes that come, you know, to pass or whatever. But what I was really hoping for is that we would actually see the threat of Ultron build up a little bit more before right. he was yeah. finally taken down. And a, and a lot of the stuff that they did in the film that talked about stuff that he was doing, attacking facilities and trying to grab these things, and I was really hoping we would see a little bit more of that. But, I mean, you know, again, I mean, what can you do in a two-and-a-half-hour movie? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so well, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that, that every MCU film from now on should be a two-parter. <laughs> I agree. Well, it looks like they're going to be doing that with the Infinity Gauntlet, and they, they really should have done that yeah. with this, too. It yeah. just seemed Ultron was, like, there and an immediate threat just, like, within a couple hours. There, you're right. There was no build-up. Right, right now you're getting that huge build-up with Thanos, so... Right. Exactly. Yeah. When you have a film that's called Captain America Civil War, I mean, how are you going to do the Civil War in two and a half hours? I mean... Exactly. That's... that's really anxious to see what they do now, now I think it's going to be built up to the movie Infinity yeah well up to up to Civil War I think with all the movies coming up to that one it's going to be slowly building up you're going to see I mean, the whole thing happening I guess, I guess you know if if you take a look at the whole from Iron Man 1 all the way up to where now I mean you guess you could say that these are all one interconnected movie oh absolutely yeah. but something like Ultron and Civil War and, and some of these other ones uh, it, it just really seems to make well I mean from a fan's perspective it, it would make sense for it to be a two-parter from a from a production standpoint I don't, I don't know how you could how you could argue for that but yeah uh, exactly two blockbuster <laughs> movies instead of one I mean yeah. <laughs> double the payout you know? <laughs> but I mean you know that, that that ties up a lot of people's time times for you know uh, a, a lot of a great chunk of time. I mean, it was like two years, two or three years of development, you know, for, yeah. for each film. So, I mean, you know, it's a lot of time to ask of people to, to dedicate to it. But, you know, I was, I was just interested <laughs> to see what they do with the next Avengers Avengers movie, which I guess will be the uh, Infinity Gauntlet with you know the Hulk supposedly not going to be in it, and Iron Man, mm -hmm. you know, with all the new cast. I'm really curious to see what happens. So, anyway. I had to get that off my chest. I've been begging to ask you. I heard another interview you hey. were on, and you said you were anticipating it, and I was like, I, I got to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I could probably talk about the MCU all day long, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, so could we. So this yeah. might be a very long uh, interview right here. I, I'm, I'm free all evening, so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so then you, uh, you did grow up reading comics. What did you uh, grow up reading? I mean, was it exclusively the Marvel Universe? 
Um, my father was in the Air Force, and my mother is from England, so um, uh, I was born in Florida, and shortly after my younger brother was born, we moved back to England. So I grew up on a lot of uh, a mixture of English and American pop culture. So when I was living in England, I, I grew up reading um, a lot of kids' literature for, for that was, you know, popular among uh, British kids, so like Joe 90 or um, Thunderbirds and um, UFO and, and Space 1999. That was a little bit later. That was after I left England. But um, so I, I had a mixture of, of American and British pop culture, uh, and I collected or I read a lot of superhero comics growing up. So and and really early on landed in on the Marvel camp. Uh, I, I enjoyed Batman and, and Superman, but um, I don't know for some whatever reason the the Marvel stories really grabbed me a lot tighter than than the DC stuff. So um, yeah, from like the age of four or five on, um, I was reading comic books whenever I got a chance. Right. And I can totally agree with you. I always gravitate toward Marvel more so than DC. And I think the reason being is just because it's grounded in our reality where mm, DC, yeah. you know, you had Gotham and uh, Metropolis and, you know, these all everything's made up where you know, the stuff Spider-Man's getting into, you know, happening, you know, right downtown New York. I've, I've been there. Well, you know, uh, you know I, I did read a lot, a lot of DC comics, uh, uh, but I, for some reason or other, you know, reading them, I was like going, now, how many different types of kryptonite are there? There's, there's <laughs> so it, even, even as like a six-year-old, I was wondering, this doesn't really sort of fly. It's just sort of kind of goofy and, and whatever. And, and of course, DC at that time, you know, Batman was on television and was Adam West and sort of campy and, and uh, had a, a, a great element of humor to it, as did a lot of the comics at that time. But for some reason or other, Marvel seemed to be a little bit more, I don't know, for a seven-year-old, it seemed a little bit more believable, you know? Right. I don't know. Well, Stan Lee had said something like that a long time ago. Like what he, he said when he would make a character, you know, it wasn't enough just to say what their power was. You had to show how it worked, too. You know, with right. Superman, I mean, they kind of give you an idea of how his powers work, but, you know, not down to the last... He's thing. super strong. Well, okay. <laughs> Believe it. Well, yeah. for, as as an example, I mean, I, I, very, I remember very clearly the first time uh, I saw one of the Avengers issues that had Black Panther in it. And Black Panther goes up against, I guess, I think he's the executioner, but he, he fires a blast from that little weapon that he has and, and it, it hits Black Panther in the shoulder and rips his costume. And I think that was the first panel that I thought, oh man, uh, you know, he really got hurt. Because right. anytime, anytime that like Superman or Batman got punched, their costume never ripped, or uh, there wasn't any sort of like repercussion of that. Right, uh, easily shook off. So, yeah, so I mean, I remember looking at that panel and thinking to myself, "Oh my gosh, these, you know, he's really in he's in bad shape, you know." Right. So a little bit more of a, an emotional connection uh, because of that. And and that that goes a lot to to the artist. I think it was John Buscema uh, who had done that or um, so yeah, I mean, it just just grabbed me, you know, where I lived. That's awesome, man. And I, I'm sorry. I know we're supposed to be talking about you. I just I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't help myself. So, <laughs> okay, well, let's turn our attention more over to you. I'm sure comics will come back up, though, somewhere in the oh, conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you first get into acting? Well, uh, as, as I said, I mean, I, w I was kind of an outgoing child, and, and my father was in the Air Force, and, and when we were living... Uh, 
in Colorado Springs, uh, he was working at the uh, the Air Force Academy there, uh, and br had brought home a parachute for us to play with. One of the, uh, I guess it had ripped or something, and okay. so we had this big we had this big giant parachute that we would play with in the backyard, and and I would I found myself uh, saying it up as a curtain, and then I, I would take these comic books that I had read and I would act them out for my parents. I would make them sit at the front of the carport, and I'd say okay. And, and then I would set up the scene, and then I would pull it apart, and then I would act out these things. So oh, wow. um, I always had this sort of performance-oriented personality. Uh, it kind of got subdued middle school through about the first part of high school. I went through a sort of very shy phase or, or whatever. But uh, about midway through high school, uh, I figured out that being on stage was really where I wanted to be, and so I threw all of my energy into that. and. From high school onward, that's that's what I did. I, I just pursued a, a career of acting. Now, you've done some stage acting and directing too. Is that right? That's correct. Like yes. out, like uh, after your college years. Correct. Anything you'd like to uh, mention? The stage stuff kind of I, I kind of got away from it. Or the early late late 1990s, early 2000s, I kind of got away from it. I, I've kept in touch with it, but it, it's nothing. I mean, I'm. I consider myself more of a writer these days than, than right. an actor, so um, not not that I wouldn't turn down uh, an acting job if it came along, and, and I, I do have a, a great love for, for that kind of thing, so, I mean, it's in me, it's not going to go away. Um, the, the shows that I did, I don't think anybody would uh, remember. Yeah, I mean, I mean... When I was in college, I got to play Salieri and Amadeus. Um, when I was going to the University of Pittsburgh, they had the Three Rivers Shakespeare Festival, so I got to be in three Shakespeare plays a year for three That's years. Cool. Uh, I got to play uh, Quentin in Arthur Miller's After the Fall. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've, I've run the gamut from uh, Spear Carrier number one all the way up to a, to a lead role on stage. Uh, and I've had a chance to, to direct uh, students in scenes and... and uh, a number of community theater productions that I've directed too. So I mean, it's it's still a part of me, but it, I kind of concentrate on my writing right now. Gotcha. <laughs> so how did the Power Rangers first come to you? How did you first hear about it? What was your first impression of the concept? When I was I, w I went to Southwest Texas State University for my undergraduate. I got a BFA at acting there, uh, and then I had gone to the University of Pittsburgh to get my MFA. Well, a lot of the people that I had known from Southwest had moved out to California during that time. So after I got my MFA at the University of Pittsburgh, I thought, well, I'm going to go out to L.A. because I want to see if I can't give it a shot, you know, uh, see if I couldn't get into movies or TV or, or whatever. Right. And so I, I, had a, I had a network of friends that were already living out there. And uh, one of those people uh, was named Stacy Fish, and she was a production assistant director or production person. On, she was already working at Saban at the time, oh, I see. Uh, doing uh, doing um, some of their direct-to-video to films and stuff like that. And she called me up and said, hey, listen, they're going to have an audition for this, uh, this character that we're working on, because she was actually part of the crew that was working on the pilot and said, uh, I think you'd be really good for it, so why don't you come down to, to the building and read? And I thought, yeah, sure, well, that's why I'm here. And I'd only been in, in Los Angeles for about a month and a half at that time, so I went down there and I thought, well, it's going to be me and 500 guys and I'll read the lines and go home and never hear anything. But when I got there, uh, it was just me and this other gentleman. And for the life of me, I, I can't remember his name or, or anything that much about him. But I thought it was just very, very unusual. But then I found out that they were they were planning to cast it that day because they wanted to film it the following week. 
So I thought, oh, nice. okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, we kind of separated, took the lines. He went to one corner and I went to another, and um, we kind of read over him a couple times, and then they took him in first, and he was in there for about 20, 25 minutes and came out. And then I went in and met the... Uh, the director, the producers, uh, the writers, Tony Oliver. I met the, all the original cast members, and they had me stand up on a table, and I read the scenes with them. And I remember very clearly at that at that point, Austin St. John turning to everybody and going, "Well, I think we found our Zoltar." And uh, <laughs> I went home, and about a couple hours later, I got a phone call saying I got the job. Wow. When I when I was t when I was told about the character, uh, I really kind of got excited about it because. First of all, it was about superheroes, and <laughs> I was all about superheroes. <laughs> uh, the one thing that really excited me, uh, well, I mean, when we first did it, you know, it was all sort of like, oh, yeah, well, it'll be a pilot. Yeah, yeah, sure, you hear about it all the time. And I don't think, I, at least I didn't expect that it would get picked up. I was just sort of like, I was just very excited to be cast in something so quickly uh, because I had... I had known a lot of people that had been out there, you know, 10, 15 years and, and never got a commercial or never did anything. So I, I felt very lucky and very privileged to be picked right away to, to do something. Right. And uh, after the show got picked up, I was super excited because it was on the same channel that they were doing the X-Men cartoon on. And I was oh, like, I'm, hey. <laughs> I'm like, I'm right there with the X-Men. So uh, as far as uh, the concept of the show and the character, I was I was very excited about it because I thought, well, wow, that's really cool. Right. And uh, I, I was also a big kaiju fan when I was growing up. I mean, Godzilla and King Kong and, and Ultraman and all that stuff. Yeah. So so to find out, you know, to find out it was going to be giant robots and giant monsters, I was just like, I'm yeah, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm already there. That was on Fox, wasn't it? Yep. When it first yeah. came out. Yeah. I wonder if uh, Mike Pollock was doing the the announcer for Fox Kids Fox at the Box. same time. Yeah, the, the guy who does the opening for our show, Mike Pollock, uh, he was the voice of Fox Kids and Foxbox for a while. I wonder if they uh, lined up at the he, same time. He might have. So you had just mentioned that uh, the character originally was named Zoltar. Why, why did they change the name? My understanding is, and my memory of it, and I could be wrong, uh, but my, my memory of it is because the movie Big had the fortune teller machine, and that character, the... The writing on that was Zoltar. And I think somebody pointed that out to them and they're like, oh, okay, well, we've got to change it. So that that's my memory of it. Oh, man. Wow. And in the end, who left the bigger impression? <laughs> All right. <laughs> as far as uh, your portrayal of Zordon, uh, I had heard you pull a lot of the inspiration from like uh, Greek mythology. Is that right? That's correct. When I was in the audition process, uh, sitting across the room from the other gentleman, he he was doing a very interesting take on it. He had sort of a uh, a high pitched, more of a kind of almost witchy poo kind of thing. Ah, Power Ranger. <laughs> um, and I I really kind of felt that was the the wrong way to go. But of course, I wasn't gonna, you know go over there and go, hey, listen, you might want to try this. But, um, uh, having having been told about the character and and given his background about he was supposed to be this uh, this mentor and this leader for them. And then as soon as I found out that they were going to put me on a table uh, so that I was standing above them, um, that really informed the idea that, that he should have this sort of deep, resonant tone to his voice. And um, so I, I tried to keep in mind what I, I I would find to be, you know, somebody who would be a, a guiding force, you know, for somebody who... Um, so 
I was 20, 29 at the time. And so, uh, you know, just reached deep as, as deep as I can in, into my, my vocal range and, and tried to create this very commanding and yet at the same time very soft you know, father-like voice. And I, in in my head, I was always thinking, well, you know, what would Zeus sound like? What what would this large being that's up on top of a mountain, what, what would it actually sound like? Right. Um, so that that's that was my inspiration. That that's that was in my that what was in my head. So the voice, you say you had to dig real like dig deep to get that uh, voice. Are you that was you like getting that low, or was your voice altered at all for the end uh, end result for the show? Um, I, I, I do think that they ran it through some sort of uh, modulation or some sort of uh, echo that they added to it. But, um, I mean, I, I didn't want to go into a growl or, uh, or a, what you would consider to be a dark voice. But I did want to use my lower register for it. So I, I would try to talk as deep as I could. And, and, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I've had a number of people, uh, you know, tell me that, that Zordon had a sort of British accent, and I was like, well, I, I really wasn't aware of that. Maybe it was because I was just trying to over-enunciate or, or, you know, make sure that the diction was very clear. And I do have, you know, my mother has, has English in her background, so, you know... Right. On some level, maybe it did come through. I, I, I didn't really intend it to sound it that way. I'm just trying to make it as clear as possible. That was incredible yeah. hearing that. That yeah. was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I may ask you to do that a little bit later. <laughs> oh, sure. Not a problem. So as far as filming the character goes, was there a makeup process, much of one? How did they put your head at a... Uh up in that tube well uh after after i got the phone call about getting the job i was like oh that's great and they said okay uh i think it was like a week and a half later uh you'll report to this warehouse and and so forth so i showed up there at like eight o'clock in the morning uh they took me into the makeup room they sat me in a chair they shaved all my hair off they had put some sticky glue on my ears so that they would stay tight against my head and then they had uh, put on a base makeup and darken my eyebrows and that was basically it and then they painted uh from my chin down to about the middle of my chest with green latex paint and then i went and sat in a barber chair for like quite a while i want to say it was like three four or five hours something like that in front of a green screen while they set up the lights and and we ran through the script a number of times and uh, my recollection is all the other cast members were there because they fed me their part of the lines when we were doing the the scenes and then I recorded a number of other takes and then they had me sit there for like 45 minutes and do different facial expressions or different tilts of my head or raising my eyebrows or widening my eyes just just giving all sorts of different expressions uh, that they might need you know for cutaways and, and stuff like that you know as, as a first time gig as a first time job in LA you're like sure yeah whatever you want me to do I'll do it right uh, in hindsight um, it, it's it was kind of a disappointing deal because uh, they only ended up filming the character one time and then reusing the footage over and over. So um, you have to give kudos to Haim Saban and the producers for being really smart that way. I mean, they, they were reusing all the, the footage from the original Zoo Ranger show, so why not reuse some of their, their footage they already had? Right. Um, and, you know, for for budget wise, I mean, so from a from a business standpoint, it was brilliant. From a, from an actor standpoint, it really sucked. <laughs> uh, so um, because you know, as an actor, 
when you get certain lines, they would probably benefit from a from a different facial expression or or something like that, you know, because right. so so much of our communication is done, you know, how somebody looks at you can speak a thousand words. And even though they had all of this footage of me and they just reused it over and over, you know, sometimes a lot of the facial expressions didn't really match what Zordon was talking about. And and I guess from a writer or producer standpoint, you could justify it by saying that, well, he's trapped in a time warp, and so this information isn't being displayed as quickly or as as visually as it should be because of that, but... Like there's a delay, right? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, from an actor's standpoint, you could argue that, well, it would benefit the show a lot better, and and, uh, and I, I, think, I think that's, you know, what a lot of the, the fans of the show have picked up on, especially, like, with Megaforce, when they introduced uh, Gosei and his little robot companion. It didn't quite have the same impact, because... Gosei was a static face. It didn't move. It didn't look at you. Um, oh, it was yeah. just, mm-hmm. it was just, it was just hanging there on the wall. Whereas Zordon, you know, you could definitely tell it was a living being. I mean, he was, he was yeah. looking at, he was looking at the Rangers. He was recognizing them. He was, he was seeing them. So um, it was disappointing to know that the character wasn't going to be filmed anymore. But I mean, you know, what could I do at that point? Right. That's true. Well, that stinks. So they filmed you for that one day and then after that you just went in and uh did your voice work and you were only around for the first 31 episodes is that correct that is correct yeah i did voices for the first 31 episodes after that point i i i think i was done with la i was like i was very unhappy living there um uh i had gotten to know tony oliver pretty well the the head writer and had i stayed out there i i might have been writing episodes for the show but I, i was just very unhappy living out there i felt like i was spending all of my time in my car and I wasn't auditioning I wasn't advancing my career like I thought it would and I was also afraid that I was gonna you know mess up on my bills or or not be able to pay my bills and I was one week away from living under a bridge and and that sort of thing so I I felt on an on an emotional level that it was healthier if I if I left LA so I, I had a conversation with everybody and said hey you know I'm gonna be exiting and and in in hindsight you know you always have sort of like wow what would have happened but you know i i don't have any regrets uh, for leaving but um right you know because they, they never said anything about well we you know we plan on bringing the character outside of the tube and and that sort of thing and i, I was really starting really wanting to do more in front of the camera but it, it just never worked out and then in the movie, they do bring him out of the TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I had I was back living in Pittsburgh, and I had gotten a phone call from somebody that was working in, in the Saban offices saying, hey, they're getting ready to, you know, to do a Power Rangers movie. And, uh, you know, they were setting up, uh, they were going to film it in Los Angeles. Would you be available to come back? And I said, yeah, of course I would. And then, then nothing. I didn't hear anything for a while. And then I found out that the production had moved to New Zealand and that they had cast somebody else down there. And I was like, well, that's... That's typical. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just never made any sense to me. I, I just recently saw the movie, and when I saw Alpha 5, the command center, and Zordon, I thought, well, that's not consistent with anything I've seen on the television. And I, I don't see why they uh, would have done that, why they wouldn't have had you be their Zordon. Well, I, I don't know either. I, I, I have no idea. But, you know, you watch the TV show, and then you look at the movie, and it's like, that's two different things. It looks completely different. And then then they went right back to producing more episodes that were continuing to use my face. And I was like, that's very bizarre. But, you know. <laughs> you know. Now, there are some fan-made films that are going to be coming out, I believe, released this year that you're a part of, if I'm not mistaken, Zordon of Eltar and uh, MMPR. Is that correct? Right. Uh 
I'm not sure exactly where they are with the MMPR uh, uh, project. I, I know that they had some setbacks as far as like their special effects. I, I hope they're still moving forward to it because it looked like a really a really fun project and they had done some some really uh, interesting things with it. Um, and I had I got a chance to actually reprise the voice of Zordon in that uh, in in that version. The the character of Zordon was actually integrated with a computer system, so I, I was able to record lines and send it off to them, and they were very happy with it. But I. I haven't heard anything about what's going on with that. Zordon of Eltar um, looks to be like a really, really, really good uh, fan film, and, and I got to voice King Mondo in that, so I got to be the bad guy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I can't wait to see that movie. It looks like we're going to get to see uh, Zordon's origin, you know, where he comes from, why mm. he's doing what he's doing. Right, uh, and I think that was one of the, the things that hasn't really been explored uh, for Power Rangers in in the canon episodes. It's it's um, what you know. What was Zordon's origin? How did how did he get trapped? You know, how did he come up with you know the designs for the Zords and what was life like on Eltar and, and that sort of thing. So I mean, and, you know, and from a business standpoint, I mean, the show was created to sell merchandise, so uh, they didn't have any toys of Zordon, they didn't have any... When you look at the original Zoo Ranger uh, TV series, the equivalent for Zordon was a, a wizard that lived in a cave named Barza, so, I mean, Zordon is a completely American creation for, for the Americanized version of the show, so it, it wasn't really a priority for them to promote that. I mean, it was all about the, the rangers and the swords and the weapons and that kind of thing. So. Right. Yeah, that's a backstory I definitely want to yeah. read more into. That'd be freaking awesome. Yep. Now, also uh, returning, what I read on IMDb anyway, to the MMPR, another original cast member was uh, Robert Axelrod, the voice of Lord Zed. Yeah, um, which is great because... <laughs> I guess you know. Uh, I've, I've been told, and, and you know, I've, I've done a number of cons with with Robert and with Barbara Goodson, who was Rita Repulsa's voice, oh, and yeah. uh, with Kerrigan Mahan, who was the voice of Goldar. And to see to see the fan reaction when those voices get pulled out <laughs> is it's really amazing. So when people are looking at, at a new version and then they actually hear Lord Zed's voice. I mean, it, it lends a, a, an element of authenticity, I guess, to to the project. Absolutely, and the, the all I've seen of MMPR is the uh, the poster that's on IMDb, and it looks pretty sweet. It looks like it's Lord Zed in like a cloak, and he's holding his little helmet, looking at it. Oh. Yeah, there there's a there's a trailer that they had out for it. Um, you could probably find that online too. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm gonna definitely dig that. I'm gonna start digging. Now, there was another one in uh, 2014, Teenagers with Attitude. Did you have any involvement with that one? Um, I didn't have any involvement with that, man, but that's that's being done by the same gentleman, Cisco Davis Jr., uh, who's doing Zordon of Eltar. And right now, they're I think they're gearing up to do a second part of Teenagers with Attitude because... Uh, in the first teenage with attitude, it ends just before they morph. I think I think they were um, they were planning on continuing that. Well, I'm excited. I mean, that one seemed like it was a pretty good movie, so I, I can't wait to see the rest of these here. Mm-hmm. Speaking of fan films, and you probably saw this one coming a mile away, but uh, there was that real dark, gritty oh. fan film of the Power Rangers that came out. <clears throat> so, I don't know what was that a month or two ago. Uh, it was a couple months. I had Katie Sackhoff and uh, 
the Dawson, Dawson. Yeah. <laughs> James, James Vanderbeek. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that came out in right near the end of February because I was in Pensacola at the time. Yeah, I, I got to see both versions of it. I got to see the uh, Not Safe for Work one and, and the other one. Um, the first thing is that it was really, really well done. Um, Joseph Hahn, the director, is somebody who is very proficient and who is very creative and, and very... He's, he's a good filmmaker. I mean, he knows how to use the camera. He knows all about color palettes and, and how to set a scene and... and the whole opening sequence where you see uh, the rangers running across the landscape and, and right. uh, everything fine. I mean, it, I, th I thought it was really, really well done. It was, it was shot well. They, they obviously sunk some money into it. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it's not Power Rangers. One of the, the, the charm about Power Rangers is that it is, it is goofy, it is cheesy, and it is a little bit colorful. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, they, they win, they save the day, everybody high fives and you go home um, to the juice bar or whatever. Um, <laughs> 30s juice bar. Uh, I, I got a chance to see the video that the producer, uh, Avi Shankar, who also did a number of other uh, interesting takes on stuff, he did one uh, about the Punisher called uh, Laundry Day or, or something like that. Um, oh, I'm definitely and, looking that up. <laughs> yeah, and he, he also did another one. Uh, that one, that Punisher one, was with Thomas Jane, So, and it, and it was really well done. Oh, wow. uh, the other one that he did was um, starred one of the guys from True Blood, but it was all about Eddie Brock and Venom, and that, that was also really well done. So, I mean, these these are guys who obviously know what they're doing as far as being able to tell a story and that sort of thing. And I saw Abby Shankar's uh, explanation about why he chose Power Rangers. He, he obviously loved the show growing up, and, you know, his his take on the whole thing is like, well, I'm an adult now, and I want to know how anybody could allow a big giant floating head to recruit them to fight a war that they weren't a part of. You know, so I, as an adult and as a writer myself, I can say, oh yeah, okay, well I understand where that comes from. Um, but first of all, you have to, you know, you have to go all the way back to the first episode for the Power Rangers, and they didn't accept right away. Zordon said, hey, this is what's going on. Right. Reed, is Reed is attacking the planet. Here are these powers, and they're free to use if you want them and all of them say no they walk away um jason is is the one that's interesting to me because he's the one that stays there the longest and is considering right there saying yes but it allows his friends to sort of convince him to leave and it's only when they get outside and get attacked by the putties do they decide that okay well let's give this a shot so and i i think that's a really good lesson for for the kids you know as far as it's your choice to do right. what you want to do. So, as far as that that gritty, dark and gritty fan film, I mean, I, I applaud the effort. I, I I thought it was awesome. I I loved the twist ending. Uh, I loved the fact that it was Rita that that was did the whole thing, and they got it right. I mean, if if you want to beat the Power Rangers, you have to take them out one by one because if they come at you at a team, you know, you lose. <laughs> right. I enjoyed it, but I I totally know exactly what oh, yeah. you mean. That, that uh, the, I mean, you know, the camp the, is part of the experience. Sure, and and the fourteen year old inside of me was like, going, "This is freaking awesome." <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I I didn't totally buy that Bulk and Skull were were <laughs> meth heads or anything like that. But. That part was a little too far. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that Bulk and Skull. I, I I wasn't even really rolling with them as a child, but everything else was good. Uh, 
you know, when you when you look at it, I mean, those guys really are the backbone of the show. I mean, they they kind of stitch everything together, uh, and they're so good as far as their physical comedy. And, and Paul and Jason are just really, really great guys. I mean, I always enjoy watching them on the show because I know it's going to be a goofy pie to the face kind of thing. And, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, you're right. I guess they did add a uh, com- the comedic element. To when they uh, teenagers were just hanging in the juice bar and yeah and and they were they were the two consistent characters for like four or five s- seasons you know they they changed rangers a couple times but those two guys you know were there all the way through so. you're right and if I remember right there were even a few occasions where they uh, inadvertently helped the rangers in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think by the time that you know their their story arc ended, they had gone from these sort of bully, bumbling buffoons to these really sort of heroic characters. So they had this really nice long character arc where they they grew from being annoying, bumbling fools to sort of protectors, and I, and I thought that was really cool. See, I don't, I never saw that part. Mm-mm. I'll have to go back yeah, and watch that. Yeah, they they got jobs as security guards at some point, so you know they they were moving in that direction for a while. I did not know that. Fun facts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after the Power Rangers, uh, you said you left LA, you went back to Texas. What mm-hmm. what did you do after that? Uh, well, I I drove from LA. I, I stopped in Texas for Schwab, then I settled in Pittsburgh, and. Oh. Um, and so I was in Pennsylvania, and I and I, and I worked as as an actor uh, for a while. Um, I got involved with a murder mystery dinner theater group that's still active in the Pittsburgh area called Mysteries Most Wanted, and and that was a, it's a five man troupe that travels the tri-state area, West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, doing murder mystery dinner theater. And the scripts that we were using when we started were, you know, just these basic uh, scripts. And, you know, if you've ever done dinner theater, it's basically you do this sort of uh, sketch show in between all the tables while people are eating dinner and stuff. And you do these an hour long noir mystery or, or a, uh, a 40s detective kind of thing. But um, after doing that for about a couple of years, we were like, these, these scripts, we could do better than this. So we started writing our own scripts. And that's really where the company kind of took off. Um, and and they're still around today. And, and at the same time, I was doing other stage productions around the area. I was doing uh, radio commercials, uh, TV commercials. And then I got asked to do some voiceovers for a video game company called Dreamforge Entertainment, which was located in Jeanette, PA, just outside of uh, Pittsburgh, and went out there. And I did voices for the Dungeons and Dragons gold box games that they were doing. So I got to do the voice of Dritz Orton, who was the, the dark elf. And um, uh, I got to do voices for a couple of their Dungeons and Dragons products. One was Stone Prophet, one was Anvil of Dawn. And then I, I was able to do some writing for them too, as well. I, I wrote one of their guidebooks and, and stuff. So, and then I got into that and then got married and the marriage led us to uh, Massachusetts. So I was living outside of Boston for a while and I got into the video game culture out there. I worked for Impressions Games for a while doing Q, uh, QA work to begin with and then I was also doing voices for their games. Impressions did uh, some city builder games called Zeus and Poseidon and Cleopatra and I, I did voices for that and then I was also working for another company called Stainless Steel Studios and they did a, a real-time strategy game called Empire Earth and I did a majority of the voices for that game 
after those two uh, gigs ended, I ended up getting hired by another company called Mad Dog Software, who was doing the sequel to Empire Earth, and then I got to do design work on that one. So I did uh, mission design and scenario design for Empire Earth 2 and continued to do voice work. And then we did the sequel to Dungeon Siege called Dungeon Siege Legends of Verona, and I did voices and missions and writing for that. And so I, I worked in the video game industry out there for five, six years. The marriage ended, and I then I went back to Texas, did some theater, took some time off, went to Burning Man, and <laughs> I had a really good time at the Burning Man. Um, and then I came back, and I, and I taught high school for a semester and found out very quickly that I was not cut out to be a high school teacher. Um, <laughs> being a high school teacher is is a very, very tough job, and I applaud anybody oh, yeah. that does it uh, more than more than I did. And then, um, and then started uh, working on my writing and stuff. And then um, I left Texas, went back to, to Pittsburgh for a while, and got some day jobs, was working on my writing. And then in 2011, 2012, I think it was 2011, some uh, friends who knew some other friends put me into, or had the people that ran Tekka Shokan, which is an anime convention that happens every year in Pittsburgh, they got in touch with me and wanted to know if I'd be a special guest. And I said, sure. And I didn't know anything about the con circuit at that time. I was At, at that point, um, Zordon was just sort of like a, an anecdote that you tell people at parties. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I really hadn't kept up with the show. I, I didn't. I didn't realize, you know, where the show was. I, you know, I didn't even uh, at that point. I'm, I wasn't even sure if it was still going on. And then uh, getting on the internet and finding out, oh my gosh, they they're still doing the shows. And um, and then finding out that it had a had a quite a large following, and that there were a lot of people that were wondering, well, where is Zordon? Who, you know, what's going on with him? And that was the first time that I got to be on stage in front of an audience of Power Rangers fans and was just sort of really kind of blown away by how passionate they were about the show. And, and that was the first time I heard stories about somebody who had come from a broken home who, who was a latchkey kid and came home and Power Rangers was there for them. And, and uh, it was very heartwarming and very humbling to know that um, the show touched people in such a positive way. And, and that's that's really the the one that's my proudest moment uh, about being associated with the show is that it was something that helped people it, w it wasn't like oh yeah i got to be jason in friday the 13th and slash somebody's throat that's pretty cool right. um <laughs> uh, you know the the fact that even though the show was cheesy and goofy and and kind of something you might laugh at i mean it, it did help people. It, it, it was very positive for a lot of people. I found that to be something to be very proud of. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's many characters, cartoon and, you know, action alike that, that inspired me. So, so when you're out there with the fans, I mean, have there, have there been any, like, really memorable experiences that really kind of touched you? Yeah, there have been a couple. Uh, this past April, I was in Philadelphia for the Great Philadelphia Comic Con, and uh, Saturday morning, I had gotten down to my table early. Nope, there wasn't really anybody else there yet, and I was setting up. And um, I noticed that one of the security personnel had been kind of hovering around my table, and he was you know, standing 15, 20 feet away uh, with another one of his security people, and he kept wiping his face. And you know, I could see that you know, he was trying to get the courage to come over and talk to me. So I came around the table, and I walked over to him, and I said, hey, what's going on? And I could see that, you know, his his eyes were filled with tears, and he, he was uh, kind of choked up. And 
he just launched into this really nice story about how if it hadn't been for the show, he might not have been able to get out of his neighborhood the way that some of the kids that he had grown up with didn't make it out. And um, that he was very nervous and choked up about being able to meet these people that meant so much to him. And I just I just had to give the guy a hug. And, and, and when I did, he just fell apart in my arms. And, wow. and so that to me is is the reason that we go to these things. It's 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 not to sign an autograph or whatever. It's it's to it's to have that sort of moment of, of human connection that says, you know, thank you. And I see you and, and I appreciate you for who you are. And I think that's the one that's really stab me in the heart <laughs> when I when I think about it. So. Right. That's that's amazing. Yeah. And I can say how awesome this is to be you in this situation because thinking back to when the show first started, you were brought in and filmed for one day <laughs> and here we are twenty some years later and there are people still coming to you and saying what an impact you've made on their lives. That's amazing. I, I always try to make sure that, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, that everybody realizes that I, I did the voice for 31 episodes, but Robert Manahan also provided the voice for the character. And, and so I, I think he had a lot to do with some of the impact. And unfortunately, Robert passed on. So um, he's not he's not able to to communicate. But the, char- the character itself, I think, is, is a tribute to the people that, that put the show together as far as knowing what to write or the way that it was written so that it would be this sort of mentor figure that people could look up to. So um, as much as I would like to take credit for uh, the character, I mean, it, it, it wasn't just me. There were, there were other people that were involved with it, too. Right. Now, being at these cons, have you seen a lot of uh, Zordon like cosplayers? Uh, I've seen two. You've got to describe uh, these outfits to us. Huh? <laughs> um, well, uh, you you can find this one gentleman on on the internet. His 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 cosplay was fantastic. I, I I got a chance to attend Power Morphicon last August, and um, that was my first real sort of experience with full on Power Ranger fandom. And this young man had a Zordon cosplay where he had the big plastic tube, he had the command center laid out in front of him, he had all the Rangers in front of him, oh, and he, wow. it was something. It was something that he lifted up and wore on his shoulders and carried around, and he had his face painted blue, and um, he came over to the table, and he was like, and he, I actually asked him if he could take it off, and he took it off, and I put it on, and he was freaking out because <laughs> Zordon was actually in his cosplay, and... and uh, that I think that's the one that that really sticks out for me as as far as like uh, being just fantastic. <laughs> That'd be something else to see. Jack just yeah, pulled up uh, a picture here, and we were. Yeah, I'm, I want to say uh, his Instagram is Nelly Boy or or something like that. But uh, it, it was really really well done. One of the first cons I went to, there's a gentleman there. Speaking of uh, the what was it from Big the the fortune telling machine? Yes, there was a guy in costume in that whole booth like he had the whole box around him and then like uh, down the sides were skirts that hit his legs but he looked like a moving machine it was crazy but just having to lug that around all day having to stop for pictures it's it's awesome that people do that that that's one of my my highlights of going to cons is is to see uh the cosplayers and and you know the hard work that they put into putting those some of those things together i mean those there's some really really detailed uh outfits so i you know i I love cosplay I, i i think it's just awesome and it's really becoming a uh 
becomes a lot more popular, it seems, in the last two or yeah. three years. You have, like, professional cosplayers that go around uh, presenting the characters they play. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of jealous because they get invited to more cons than I do. So. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to dress up. I don't know when. Maybe not this year, but uh, I'd like to try my hand at cosplay. Yeah. Sure. All right, backtracking a little bit, you also mentioned that uh, you're you're a writer and you've got a lot of writing out there. Uh, I, I had mentioned your uh, your blog online, and mm-hmm. correct, correct me if I'm pronouncing this wrong. Is it the Dao of Zordon or the Teo? Uh, the Dao. The Dao of Zordon. The Dao of Zordon. Okay. Well, don't I feel like an idiot? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got to check that out, and that was uh, really cool. I one of the last things you post, I think, was about how we. Uh, kind of are viewing villains as more superhero-like now, or the way we, we perceive villains nowadays. I found that really interesting. I really encourage people to go check that out. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert or or that my opinion is is any better than anybody else's. It, it, it just, I mean, that post really talks a little bit more about my concern about the culture of violence that surrounds all, some of the things that we, we love because when you when you actually talk about superheroes I mean there is a very violent aspect to them um, you know which which writers greater than myself have have addressed on an, on a number of occasions uh, Watchmen being one of them um, you know the, the killing joke and and so forth um, Alan Moore's is is a brilliant writer um, and but just the the idea that somebody is going to put on a mask, and then go take the law into their own hands is 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 thrilling, but it, it also has an element of great danger to it. So I mean, and I, I think that's what they're building up with the Marvel movies is um, what happened in in Age of Ultron is is directly responsible for why there will be a civil war, um, right. why there will be why there will be a, a superhero registration act and 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 that sort of things, um, but. That post that I that I was talking about really was more about the trend in comic books for the hero with a mask is also the hero with a gun, which I I don't necessarily think is is a good role model. But I mean, right? You you really can't get away from that because if you go all the way back through literary history and and what led to comic books and and so forth the you go back to the pulps with the shadow and doc savage and and the spider and that sort of thing and those were guys that wore a mask and had a gun and took the law into their own hands and even batman himself in his in his first couple of appearances would drop people off rooftops and say well there you go that's justice for you and so this element of violence and bloodshed and and i mean i I watched. I binge watched Daredevil on Netflix. Oh man, and, it was good. Uh, I really, really liked it. Uh, it. It was. It was able to do things that they they can't get away with on Agents of Shield. And um, as much as I enjoyed watching it, I, I found myself wincing and being really taken aback by Matt Murdock's method of getting information out of people, which was basically, I'm going to jump on you from a rooftop beat on you and then ask you a question um, and and if i don't and if i don't like the answer i'm going to break your arm and then ask you another question and so for me that's that's kind of gotten away from why i read comic books in the first place i mean um and and like i said i'm not i'm not a comic book scholar i'm, I'm not a 
I'm not any more intelligent than anybody else. I was I was just giving voice to my fear that you know we're getting to a point in our society where I've seen engineers and design students actually create a working bat suit. And how long will it be before somebody actually walks out into the street with one of those things and says, okay, I'm going to punch somebody in the face now. So it's a little bit frightening to think that these iconic fantasy images or, or, or characters that you, know, you love to read about uh, is going to be walking around on the street with you. And, but, uh, you know, and, and going back to the dark and gritty take on, on the Power Rangers, I mean, that, that was really a reflection of the society we live in. Um, you, you cannot turn on the TV or watch a, t, uh, uh, a crime show or, or a police drama on TV where they don't pull out a gun every five minutes. And I really don't know what the answer is. I was just sort of giving voice to my fear that, you know, hey, right. as funny as Deadpool is, I don't know if he's a role model. Exactly. (laughs) I could never really relate to him. And though I liked the Punisher, I never really gravitated toward him a lot just because of the gun-toting aspect. Um, If I I go watch that movie, I'll go watch it because I like Ryan Reynolds. Um, (laughs) uh, As bad as the Green Lantern film was, I I loved watching him just... The way he delivered his lines, um, his his sense of humor, uh, I, I just enjoy Reynolds as, a, as an actor. Um, you know, Dead, Deadpool as a character, I, I could do without. I mean, you know, yeah, that's not who I would want to be. I'll put right. it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's definitely a good actor, and I, I always thought he was very one-dimensional because of the Van Wilder movies. But uh, you're right. After seeing Green Lantern, I mean, he does act a little goofy in that movie, but you also see the serious side of him. And I'm sure he's done other serious movies, but as mu- as much as people uh, crap all over X Men Origins Wolverine, the scene where he flies out of the elevator and uses his swords to deflect all the bullets and kill all the guys, and then stands there for a second, then go, okay. People are dead. <laughs> you know, I, I just thought it was a you know great great line delivery, and so uh, you know I, I look forward to his his very unique sense of humor in that character. Oh yeah, and they couldn't have picked anyone better. No. Definitely, great choice. Well, when, when they did the test footage that was all CGI, but he was his voiceover, and you get that wonderful moment right at the end, where after he after he cuts the guy's head off and he goes, uh, oh, oh, hi, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was, you know, that was brilliant. Well, let's hope it's good. I'm sure it will be. That's supposed to be out next year? Yeah. Got a lot of good stuff next Mm -hmm. year. All right. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about some of the work you have on Amazon. And there were a few titles that really stuck out to me, and I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit on. Um, The first being, I'm a huge music fan, so Buddy Holly and the Cold Cold Ground really stood out to me. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, Buddy Holly, I think, is the one piece that I'm really the proudest of at this moment in time. Uh, Buddy Holly and the Cold Cold Ground uh, is a short novelette uh, about a character I created called Lincoln Bright. And Lincoln Bright is a sensitive, and by sensitive I mean he's, he's basically sort of a ghost whisperer. He can sense the ghosts or spirits of people that have passed on and he can bridge the gap between them and the living. So if there is a, a haunting going on, 
he will be drawn to the area and um, he can understand what the ghost is seeing and then he can hook it up with the person because the, the main tenet of the story is that each and every one of us needs to be acknowledged before we can move on to our next stage in our existence. So um, one of the reasons why ghosts stay around is because they have something that they still need to say or that they need to be acknowledged in some sort of way before they can let go of their earthly bonds and then move on. And so it the the title comes from two separate sources i mean there's a section in in the story that talks about what happened when buddy holly died the the plane crash that that took place um and then the the latter half of the title the cold cold ground actually comes from a bugs bunny warner warner brothers cartoon really? uh, which was one of the first uh, appearances of the tasmanian devil in, and in the cartoon, um, Bugs Bunny ends up burying him, but the Tasmanian digs him out and says, why did you bury me in the cold, cold ground? And um, that, that always kind of stuck with me as a kid as, as a very, why, why did they have to say it twice? Why cold, cold ground? Why, isn't, why wasn't it just cold ground? But, um, and I, you know, I think the title you know, has sort of that unconscious fear element to it that, you know, oh, we all, all of us at some point will go under the cold, cold ground. So right. it, it has to deal with standing and facing something that you may not want to face in order to let go, move on, and that sort of thing. So that that's the main, <laughs> that's the long-winded way of saying that. <laughs> it, it, it's a story about a guy who talks to ghosts. Sounds up my alley, it does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, un unfortunately, the, the company that published it uh, folded, so um, it, you can't order it on Amazon at this point. I'm, I'm trying to find another publisher for it. Um, if, if you guys want, uh, you know, contact me. I'll, I'll send you a, a, a text version of the story if you want to read it. So, uh, Absolutely. But awesome. I'm working right now on trying to finish up another novelette-length story called Bad Animals that I would, I think would pair up pretty well with that. So I would try to package them as sort of a, a two-story deal to try to find it and find another publisher for it. That sounds awesome. And thank you. Yeah, that will definitely take you up on that. I, I can't sure. wait to read it. Thank you. Sure. Also, another title that really uh, kind of spoke to me I guess, and it looks like uh, you, amongst many other writers, have uh, had their hands in on this Capes and Clockwork, Superheroes in the Age of uh, Steampunk. We just finalized uh, volume two of that, so there'll be Capes and Clockwork 2 coming out shortly. Uh, that's basically all superhero stories set in a steampunk setting, so all of, all of the stories... Awesome. That yeah, all of, all of the stories in that setting deal with one aspect or another of steampunk uh, plus superheroes. Loves me some steampunk. Do you? Yeah. I didn't know I, that. That's cool. Yeah, I've always liked it. It's definitely neat. Mm -hmm. I, I've never, uh, I don't know, I've really seen or read anything, I guess, steampunk, but every time I see a cosplayer dressed up in steampunk or any pictures or books, they definitely am drawn toward them. So yeah. I can't wait to read that either. Are there any other projects you wanted to talk about that you're working on? Maybe I haven't even heard of. Um, well, uh, I know that I've got uh, at least four stories being published this year, uh, one of them being the, the other story in Capes and Clockwork 2. Uh, I have a, a, a story in an anthology called Dragon's Horde, which uh, are all stories that deal with dragons. I have a, a zombie story that's in an anthology that's coming out later this year. Uh, 
And the premise of that anthology had to do with zombies and bicycles. <laughs> so uh, on, on some level, all the stories in that anthology have zombies and bicycles in them. Um, uh, I also have a, a, another story um, from Proceed Press that's coming out in their collection called Right to the Cover. Uh, what they did is they, they had an artist um, design the cover, and then authors would submit pitches for what their story would be based on the cover. And that cover ended up being sort of a, a very sort of science fiction, giant robots kind of story. And I think I had, well, um, yeah, I had a werewolf story published through Sourcepoint Press in their anthology. Um, I think that's on the Amazon page too. Um, it's a it's a collection of, of werewolf stories in, in that anthology. Nice. All kinds of mediums there to read into. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm 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 kind of all over the place. <laughs> Well, that's good, though. You don't want to be fixed on one thing, I think. I mean, I'm not a writer. Tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Grab people from every pool. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, it sounds like you've got a uh, ton of stuff to read on the Internet. Like, once again, the let me say it, say it right, the Tao of Zordon at uh, therealzordon.wordpress.com. And then uh, we'll also put a link to uh, your stuff on Amazon on our website. Maybe we can help uh, direct some listeners your way. Sure, thank you. Well, no, David, thank you for uh, taking the time to sit and do this with us today. This has been surreal. Yeah. So thank you so much. <laughs> sure. All right, and that was our interview with David J. Fielding Zordon. And, man, what an all-around nice guy he was. Like Zordon. Like Zordon, <laughs> yes. Very much like Zordon. Very friendly vibe. <laughs> for sure. Uh, I want to definitely thank him again for taking the time to do this uh, for us and be on the show. You can follow him on Instagram at... DJF Zordon and on Twitter at Zordon2012. You can find them on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Zordon2012. And uh, Jack, you're going to put some links on the website for uh, his, his writing his on books, Amazon. Yeah. yeah. Help direct you over that way too. Jack, what else we have on the website? Show recaps, videos, trailers, photos, the Candare video game store, comic book store, and movie store. And don't forget to find us on Twitter at CandarePod and on Instagram at Cand underscore Air. And uh, what else? Facebook. We Facebook. are also on Facebook. Shouldn't be too hard to find, so look us up. Uh, anything else, guys? That's it for this week. All right. Well, until next week, I am Jeremy Colley. Jack Doherty. Jeff Holcomb. Let the power protect you. Another great episode of Canned Air, huh, sure Timmy? Was. Let's go outside. All right. Hey, kids. Oh, my God, who's that? It's Creeper, the worst G.I. Joe character ever made. That's right. I heard you guys were going to go outside. Why don't you stay inside and go to www.cannedairpodcast.com where you can get the scoop on past episodes, see movie trailers, and go to the Canned Air game store, video store, and comic book store. Yay! With cannedairpodcast.com, we'll never have to go outside again. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. This is Zordon. And you're listening to the Canned Air Podcast. I could do that again. Podcast? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll use it. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, 
The United States is locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains. We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. 